Sisters podcast. You are listening to your host, Jess. And Sean. Welcome back to episode six of season three. Yeah, boy. We hope you all enjoyed our episode last week with beautiful Ellie from iDNA Health. And if you haven't already, don't forget to click on to iDNA Health and book your appointment with Ellie for your initial console and you'll get 20% off if at checkout or on the phone when you book, you mention our discount code 20chroniksisters. We love that. We love that. Very exciting. And Shana's going to use it herself. (laughs) Oh yeah, I am. Definitely, definitely. We love that. Anyway, this week we have another couple of exciting guests. We're not going to dive too much into the intro because it's a chunky episode, so we don't want to take too much of your time but don't worry we'll be back in your ears next week for a life update but we are joined this week by Kat and Amy the psychology sisters oh stop it we love that they are just a couple of very incredibly clever women oh my goodness and Sean and I kind of felt like we were in the middle of a psych session we got lost yeah. in the moment we were in a therapy we session for sure shit. it was honestly a wild ride they sat there and just listened to us talk for like and they probably thought oh my god I we should charge these girls absolutely <laughs> numero uno should definitely have charged us numero dos I'm so interested as to what their psychology review of us is i know we should how ask. fucked up we are i know we should definitely ask we them. should definitely ask them i wonder if they'd share that we'll ask maybe them. i'll email them okay so kat is a psychologist and amy is a psychotherapist mm. and they have a wealth of knowledge oh my gosh, and so much. so much experience between the two of them they are girls in their late 20s too who are yeah. just absolutely killing it yeah. and they are the owners and founders of the site collective yeah and if you haven't already please follow them on instagram and they have an online support network and yeah like a clinic a clinic online yeah covid times they they got onto the bandwagon didn't they and they are just thriving and so incredibly talented and just amazingly interesting to talk to absolutely but without any further ado we will jump into our little chat with the psychology sisters kat and amy amazing yep she's on she's good oh all right, guys, we're doing it. All, All right. right. She's I was, ready. She's back. I'm sweating. We're only 20 minutes <laughs> late. I'm sweating too. <laughs> oh, my now goodness. Now is the time to break into rap. Yeah, literally, how many health professionals does how, it take? Yeah. Yeah. How many health professionals? Oh, my goodness. Anyone playing at home? For our listeners, well, they're obviously used to us. And so we come from a medical uh, nursing background but can you explain the what your roles are and what the difference is between you two firstly congrats to you guys on just being nurses i <laughs> think especially with everything going on you guys sound like you've been through quite a lot so an amazing job you both do uh sure so i am a psychologist so i work a lot with mental health amy and i our role is very similar uh we have just taken very diff- uh, a few different pathways um, in our university studies so as a psychologist i can assess and i can diagnose mental health conditions and i can undertake psychological interventions uh and yeah aims over to me, I want to echo Kat's acknowledgement and appreciation for nurses. I think the work that you do is so admirable. Hats off to you guys. Um, yes, I'm, I'm a clinical, clinically registered psychotherapist. Uh, so what that entails for me is to do a lot of deep exploratory work, um, predominantly around trauma. So individuals that have experienced complex developmental trauma, uh, really just getting 
to understand how our childhood experiences and unconscious biological programming affects things like our nervous system, affects things like chronic illness uh, and and all of that fun stuff. So really unpacking uh, a lot of our unconscious um, neurological programming is, is my jam. So interesting. And, you know, similarly for you mirroring and thanking us, I feel like there's been a shift and um, awareness around mental health so I'm sure mm. that as much as we've been on the front line from a hospital perspective you've kind of been having to deal with a lot of the forced reflection of people within isolation and so there is a lot of focus on mental health especially post pandemic or not even post really this has kind of forced a lot of people to self-reflect and being stuck at home um, has kind of made a lot of people aware of how uncomfortable they are within themselves. So, you know, similarly, thank you for all of your work that you've been doing within the mental health space. I hope you're both looking after yourselves um, in this time too. So, because we're terrible looking after ourselves and we like to tell other people to do it. <laughs> and we also like though, a nice segue at the start of every episode, we do like to check in with ourselves and with our people that we are talking Love to. That. Mm. So how are you girls just feeling in yourselves? How's your week been? Oh, that's such a beautiful way to start an episode. So thank you for asking. I feel like we're usually the ones asking. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, feeling really good. I got back from holiday. I was so lucky to go overseas. So I Where'd you go? Weeks ago. I went over to Europe. I'm <gasps> so jealous. I'm just like living through people who are going around. Like, Tell me everything. <laughs> I, was, I almost thought I was going to get um, punked because you know how through the whole COVID three years, you just learn to not get excited for anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Such a good state like, of mind to be in. Yeah, honestly, I was like, this is a joke. Mm. Ash and Kutcher's going to come out. And I'm, you know, I got to the airport and my husband's like, I think we're fine. Like, I, I think we're like, we've, we've made it. We're, we're in. The gate's not closing. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anything could happen. So, no, we're very lucky just to, just to be on a plane. Yeah. So thrilling and exciting. So, it's been really lovely um, being able to travel again. So, yeah, since coming home, it's been really nice to have a break but yeah definitely feeling a bit of that uh, post-holiday winter blues. Mm. <laughs> well you look very refreshed and Amy how about you how are you going what how's your check-in <laughs> <laughs> we love that, that like, just the laugh hysterical laughter. laugh yeah. <laughs> how am I <laughs> oh. but how are you Amy <laughs> Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm, I am I am well. I have been looking after myself with very gentle daily practices um, that I know nourish me. Things like going for daily walks in nature, spending a lot of time with my dog. Um, those are some of my non-negotiables that I will do to kind of try and practice what I preach with clients. You know, it is not always about big uh, I guess, extravagant or big change um, when we're talking about implementing things to help with our mental health or overall well-being. Sometimes it is really just about maintaining those gentle, small, daily practices, kind of like physical exercise, right? If we want to strengthen um, a part of ourselves, be it a, a physical muscle or our emotional well-being, it's just about that consistency. So lots of beach walks for me. Oh, stunning. In this winter weather. So good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah 
good. How about you guys? How are you? Yeah, how, how are you, you doing, doing, sis? Well, first of all, I'm like, mm, is that a dog in your video? Yes. On the- yeah, yes. I was like. This is my dog, Mowgli. Oh Mowgli. My gosh, what Mowgli. kind of dog is Mowgli? Mowgli is a Waimarana. He is 18 months old. Okay, so confession. Um, if you listen to our podcast, it was like season one. We're going to go back. Shan has the same kind of dogs. They're yeah. her family <gasps> dogs. Yep, 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 yep. But yep. I, for my whole life, had called them Limeranias. Yeah. Oh, that's so- tough. And I was like, she was like, I was like, yeah, your dog's a Wimmerania. She was like, sorry, what? And I was like, it's a Wimmerania. And so we had to do a whole poll. We did a poll and I was not the only one. You weren't the only one. It was like a 60-40 split. It's a tough. It's a tough name. However, I confirmed it with a German we did. A listener. And <laughs> a German listener. A German listener. Like, and I an Aust- pronounce it with a V, don't Yeah, you? it's Weimarana. Like Weimarana. And because Weimar is a place in Germany, and so the, these dogs originated from this place. So that's why they're called Weimaranas. Fun fact. Anyway, anyway. very cute Wimmerania, Mowgli. Weimarana. Welcome to the podcast. My dog is the same colour, but a staffy, but the same colour. Yeah. And too noisy. So too noisy. So he went to his grandparents for the morning. And then my dog's at home also. Uh, yes. He's a very he's a cat in a dog's body. Really, he's very quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar to Mowgli. We'll just sit there, observe the world, um, silently judge you. He does. And so our dogs hate each other. Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. Bundy is my dog, and Bundy loves Nanook. Like mm. fucking hug me, touch me, love me. And Nanook does this thing where he gets onto the couch and smashes his face in between the two back cushions so he can't see Bundy. They have got quite a toxic relationship. It's a love-hate. Yeah, he just wants to GTF. Yeah, he does. We let him. We we'll put we'll hide him from Bundy and distract him. Um, he likes Bundy in small doses, much like a rich chocolate cake. Can't have the whole thing in one go. But yeah, so we're very much dog people. So we spotted him Mowgli in, in the background quite early on and uh, I'm glad that you mentioned him because I would have been thinking about it this entire conversation I was trying to work out I was like, if it's not a dog what else could is it, it a be? cushion is it is it a rug yeah. it is it is indeed um the beautiful Mowgli um so he cute. he is a very uh anxious mm. little, little boy he has strong separation anxiety beautiful. I can't have a shower without him was he a covid purchase <laughs> He was a COVID, yeah. <laughs> was a COVID baby. COVID yes, babies are a different breed altogether, I think. Poor things. He's, he's like a little human. He's, yeah. He's literally like having a child. Yeah. 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 Aren't they all? But, but we love him. We love but, them. Sorry. How, how are you both? Oh, yeah. Sorry. sorry. Did you see that distraction? <laughs> yes. Amazing. That we did there? We're yes. so good at that. So good. <laughs> sorry. Just. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how am I? Well, I'm a little bit tired. I just finished night shift, which we love. I am back on a day shift tomorrow and then back on night shift on the weekend. So that's great. So sleeping wise, not great. So that's, I'm a bit tired and grumpy because of that, I guess. Otherwise, I'm I'm okay. I don't really have much to report. It's a bit of a meh week. Very busy week, but full of just work and appointments, which don't mm. really spark that much joy, you know? Mm. Um and so I don't really have much of a life or me time, which isn't great. But I am a dancer and tonight I'm dancing. So that will Ooh, spark some what joy. What kind of dancing? I, I don't really know how to describe it's, it's it. It's like a contemporary, what's the? Jazz, heels, stilettos, kind of like a Beyonce um, film clip. Yeah. Is the only thing oh, you can like really say. Is it like those dance classes where you wear the heels and you yeah. wear the and it's kind of sexy? Yeah. yeah. Love that. She's fabulous at it. Yeah. It's very good. So I've got great that tonight. Self-care. 
which yeah. is good. I also have the dentist after this, and that's really not good, and it's making me a little bit anxious. But um, I just hate the dentist. I just hate feet and teeth. So everyone um, has their hates. Yeah, but that's me. Otherwise, I'm fine. Bit of a meh week, just lots of work. How are you, sis? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, me, I am average at best, I guess. Um, th- again, similarly, work's been um, pretty. Uh, busy and full on Um, so there's been not much relaxation time post that I've been in a little bit of pain over the last few weeks um, so just trying to manage that again like Jess said our days off are appointments so straight after this I've got ultrasounds and GP and so it's you never get a full day off um, you just get to do life admin every single week, which is so good. But yeah, I'm I'm not bad, which therefore which I take so as a good, good thing. It's so good. Because actually, it could be worse. We've got matching internal vaginal ultrasounds. So, you know, it's a spicy 48 oh, hours. Um, we love yep, that. Shans is the Savo. Okay. Mine's tomorrow, Arvo. So if we love any, that. If there's anything that's going to bond you, it's yep. matching vaginal ultrasound. Yeah, it's I a mean, wizard stick up your hoo Connected for the womb. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, love that. Yeah. The feminine energy is Realm. just raging. <laughs> so <good>. Raging. <laughs> um, so no, I'm good. Um, it could be worse, so therefore I'm great. So <laughs> my, my baseline, are, and you'll find through the conversation, I guess, is that Jess and I, Um, because we have had chronic illnesses for a long time, mine's been lifelong and yours has been majority of yours. Our perception of norm is very warped. Um, and, uh, much like, um, you cat with your holiday in that you're just assuming something's gonna make it not work anymore or to stop, or I'm speaking for us now, but for me, like I live a constant life of like something's going to happen. So I'm just going to take it for what this is right now, because something is going to fail or be more sore or be more unwell. So we just kind of take the average days as a good day. We're probably Kat and Amy's worst nightmare. Yeah. Not at all. (laughs) Also, aside from just like personal life, like I said earlier, I'm an intensive care and palliative care nurse. Every day I'm dealing with families on the worst day of their life. So I always come home and I'm like, my day's not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. It could be worse. Like, you know, so it's that constant warped reality. My, you know, what is the sickest children in the whole of the state is my all day, every day. Whereas you forget that's not even half a percent of the population. But when you're so used to seeing people at their worst, that becomes all you see all day, every day. And then you kind of have your own health battles. And so your comparison, you're like, wow. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've actually tried with our podcast, like developing it. It was a space for us to validate our feelings and to validate others, um, experiences, but to educate also, but it's also helped us to be more thoughtful towards ourselves because we're saying to other people, this would be a better way to do things. So it's held ourselves accountable for that. And we actually have done some major reflection around that we are consumed at work with the worst of the worst um, because we are we based it in tertiary hospital. Um, and so we found ourselves comparing our, our existence to that of the people and patients that we care for. And so we would then invalidate our experience because it's not as bad as who we're caring for. And so over the last year and a bit, we've kind of been able to 
acknowledge that we do that for number one, but also try and work through that that's not our equilibrium. Um, it's someone else's. And so we, we, we're on a, a journey of growth, I think, in terms of um, self-care. We're not great at it. I don't think any health professional from a nursing perspective is good at caring for themselves um, because we spend our lives caring for others. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a real um, growth period for us, hasn't it? Mm. With, um, with our chronic, and we've just gotten sicker really <laughs> as well. Yeah. So it's just trying to navigate that um, and also to maintain a level of achievement that we hold ourselves to also, which is, almost counterintuitive in that you need to rest and care for yourself but we constantly push to almost prove ourselves better than our conditions or our sicknesses would you agree correct mm. yes so but no so we we deal a lot with the invisible illnesses because the for us uh, that's kind of our passion around the acknowledgement of the invisible illness or chronic invisible illness because you're almost fighting a stigma of being an able-bodied person um, in an able-bodied world. And yeah. I have found it exceptionally difficult over my lifetime to feel comfortable and confident in my own body because it's not the norm and it doesn't look like everyone else and it doesn't look like the rest of my family. So, and I'm still battling that, I guess. We're not kind to ourselves, I think, as a whole, as a, as a community, because we're fighting against an image that's portrayed that is unattainable for us. And so therefore it feels like a failure. Correct, yeah. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I, like I'm definitely, I'm super harsh on myself. I know that I'm, I, I am confidently worse than Sean at it. Um, just comparing myself to others all the time. Why can't I do this? And I don't learn. Like, I don't know. There's something clearly traumatic that's gone on in my little brain. Cause I just don't learn. Like I'm like, if I do 12, two 12 hour shifts in a row, I can't really function the next day but they need me at work and I feel too guilty to call in sick. So I'll do it because maybe this fortnight I'll feel better. And then I have to, I look at everyone else and go, they can all do it. Why can't I? And I just choose to ignore that I'm actually not as able-bodied as I often think I am. I, I'm, yeah, shocking for it. Have you cared for patients that have routinely ignored their bodies within chronic illness and continued to battle against that? And how would you suggest... The little steps, you know how you were saying, Amy, of like the small steps rather than the big changes. What are those little steps that people can do to kind of build a more comfortable relationship with themselves? Oh, really great question. Uh, I think what, what you're talking about uh, around this pressure, around achievement, around comparison is actually something, uh, one, really complex and something that I see a lot in clients that I work with around chronic illness, actually particularly in women. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware, but 75 to 80% of autoimmune illness, and there is a huge crossover with psychological stress and autoimmune illness. Now, women, for example, often play a role in taking on emotional stress, like they're often the emotional absorber in relationships, in families, 
And now there is also this additional uh, economic role um, that society places on women or expects women to have. And then there's this, you know, emotional responsibility as well. So we're really juggling a lot of the load, which means we have more stress and more isolation, which means we have more illness. Okay, so there is actually such a thing as disease prone personality or illness prone personality. <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah, no. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so this is this is essentially this automatic and compulsive response to look after the needs of others and ignore your own needs. Ah, oh, okay. I feel it's like we're doing we're... a BuzzFeed quiz and we're like, man, that's us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of exactly like what you were just speaking. Yeah, about, that's right? so strange. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because when we have this really compulsive identification with duty and responsibility, it's a risk factor for illness because we're repressing all of our own feelings, needs, which actually suppresses our immune system. So this is one of the most common symptoms I see when I'm working with clients with chronic illness um, because they don't actually allow themselves to experience any of the healthy anger, um, upset, um, failures that they might have as part of being human. You know, it is that fatal belief that I can never disappoint you. Um, You know, I'm always needing to achieve to be better and This kind of goes back to our brain neuroplasticity. Our brains are built to help us function as members of a tribe. And we live in a culture that encourages separation and independence. Um, So illness is, is not an entity in and of itself, it is a manifestation of our our life and and our certain contexts in which many factors are really contributing to those psychological aspects. We can't actually separate illness from um, a person's social, cultural, spiritual, emotional um, container. You know, it's more like a process in that sense where it becomes a reflection of what happens in someone's life. And the good thing about that is we can do lots to work on this process. You know, it's not something that we just have to fight or just have to battle. It, it is something that we can really learn to understand and inquire about, you know, what is my body sending messages um, to, to say that this needs attention. You know, it actually invites and necessitates an inquiry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause it can feel, um, very much like a, a tunnel with no end. So the fact that you, Absolutely. yeah. So that's, uh, and I didn't know that there was actually one, uh, a specific name for it. <laughs> that's mm. fun. Um, we love <laughs> collecting names. Um, but two, that there's actually not just those, you know, do yoga, do meditation. Like there's actually processes that you can fully understand because I think that's a, it becomes like almost like a, an overstimulation of um, feedback from your body that you just rather than dealing with, you just ignore, which doesn't help with processing well, it. Well, that's the, the fatal pattern, isn't it? Is that we tend to ignore what our body is trying to tell us rather than becoming response able. Yeah, how can, we, how can we become able to respond to what our body is telling us? And this has a lot to do with our earlier experiences. So our, our childhood experiences really 
become woven into the templates of how we interact with the world. So talking about our attachment, which is a biological drive um, that promotes us to become close to other people. Why do we have that drive? Because as infants, without it, we would die. So our attachment drive is like this gravitational force um, that pulls us together with our primary caregivers for the person of being taken care with the purpose of being taken care of, and that's a non-negotiable, right? So our other basic needs for authenticity, which means knowing what you're feeling in your guts and being able to act on that. If you've, you know, if you've ever had a strong gut feeling and you've ignored it and then been like, ha, like, wow, why did I ignore that? Um, <laughs> that's essentially this disconnect that we're talking about because as children in modern society. We are often kind of taught to not be angry, um, especially as women. I know I'm talking a lot about women and, and these are generalizations, but don't be angry. You know, message that that angry child gets is that if you're angry, you don't get love. And so then we sacrifice this authenticity, this gut feeling, because it's safer to ignore that gut feeling um, and remain attached, keep those bonds safe, then be separated. So then what we actually do is we separate from ourselves, we lose touch of our feelings, um, and we kind of develop a self that is actually a defense. Um, and, and this is happening in our body as part of our physiology. Yeah, that's, it's, that's so interesting. So interesting that it's even how you're processing life as an adult with a chronic illness can be linked to your experience as a child. And I like before even starting all of this, I did, I wanted to be a psychologist originally and I did psychology as in my, I don't know, year 11, 12 studies. It was like my, one of my top subjects and that's what I was going to do. And that's what my granddad had done and I was going to do it. And then it just wasn't hands-on enough for me because I'm awful at sitting still and I couldn't sit. So I had to nurse and then on the fly, you are constantly looking after other people's mental health. But hearing your knowledge is just so cool. And like Sean was saying, this was a couple of years ago now, but Sean was like, oh, I saw my therapist and I was doing inner child work. And I was like, Miss Scoozy, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Excited, Amy and got I then. was like, I don't get it. Like, why does three-year-old Jess matter at 28? I don't understand. Well, and that's so then hearing, to. yeah, but like, I didn't really get it. And it was the first I'd heard of it. And mm. now hearing this, I'm like, oh, I see. Yeah. And that could possibly be the root um, of perhaps some fatal beliefs is why do I need to care about that three-year-old me? It's not about caring for that three-year-old you. It's about caring for that vulnerable part of you that has needs and has feelings and needs to express um, and and meet all of those really human um, attachment-based necessities like feeling seen and heard and important and special. Um, so that that's actually, I'm just like that, nodding that's actually, ferociously yeah. as Amy's. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Because essentially it's, it's very much stress playing a constant fear role. Um, and the stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline communicate these messages through our autonomic nervous system. And that's what your physiology is responding to. Um, so short-term helpful, long-term, you know, uh, as we know, adrenaline, all you being nurses know that adrenaline secreted over an extended period of time makes us more prone to heart attack and strokes. Cortisol extended over a period of time uh, increases depression, intestinal issues, suppresses our immune system. Oh, loneliness. Yes. <laughs> looking at you, lupus. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
exactly so things like loneliness people who are lonely get sick faster and they die quicker because we are wired for connection and when we don't have that connection it feels like life or death our body goes into a state of survival um and that combination of stress and emotional isolation is deadly you know so it is really about looking at this from a biopsychosocial model um because we are biopsychosocial creatures you know when someone so someone interesting makes so much sense doesn't it it does yeah. make so much sense and you just uh, and i know that some of our listeners will feel um you know on the fence around the true effects of um therapy and having those discussions and it, from what you're saying it is almost because it's a pattern that you've created over time to ignore it just makes so much sense when you think about it in terms of the and building blocks it does and i guess i just want to interject a little bit there you didn't create this pattern okay you 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 didn't create this pattern your wise body your whole organ adapted to an environment that was lacking in some way. No fault of your parents, your parents had the best intentions, but your wise, wise body um, has these adaptive mechanisms, okay, to protect you, to keep you safe. I, I think that's where a lot of people get really stuck when it comes to doing trauma work. And that's where inner child work can actually be really, really helpful. Um, because, you know, it is about connecting to parts of ourselves that we had to disconnect from to keep ourselves safe. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting, like, taking the emotion out of it and seeing it as a interaction of objects and space, it becomes much more clear. It's because we are emotional beings that we connect shame, vulnerability, all of these things, guilt, anger, fear, but when you bring it back down to, like you said, it's at a point your being was not receiving something or and it was a protective mode, which has been caused by a reaction of A plus B. If you bring it back down to that base level, removing your personal story from it and the emotion from it, it becomes like you understand it from a almost like a binary level. It increases understanding and I think when you have understanding you have compassion because I can imagine living with a chronic illness you've been at war with yourself and your body for such a long time. I, you mentioned Sean the pervasive feelings of guilt and shame and I can imagine that must feel really hard and, and must make you feel quite powerless I can imagine to the unpredictable nature of chronic illness and how out of control does that feel. I, I can imagine uh, how how tough that is to live with chronic illness. So when you can really strip it back and be like, well, it makes sense because of X, Y, and Z, or at least some of it makes sense to me. When you have understanding of how something works, like you said, it's it's, it's almost like an, ah, oh, it, it, it's not that I have done anything wrong, so to speak, as Ames was saying, I've, this is just how my body has adapted and and how, not, how much nicer does that feel to sit in that feeling rather than there is something inherently wrong with me, which I can imagine is a core belief or may come up a lot living with chronic illness. And I really want to humanise it here that, you know, Sean, you mentioned the resistance to therapy or it can be really difficult, I wonder, because, and I, I guess I work with a lot of clients who feel really similarly like, why would I go to someone and talk to them about all the things that I think about in my head every single day? I already feel maybe a bit of a not enoughness or I failed. And is therapy just going to be about that? And I think 
I guess from a therapist perspective as a psychologist, how incredible that you have been able to get to where you are, like humanizing that and acknowledging therapy is not there to <laughs> talk about all, all of the things that make you a failure. I think therapy is there to celebrate what, how have you done that? I think a lot of the question I ask is how have you, how have you coped? How have you gotten through? Because from where we sit, a lot of the time we are always in awe and that's a lot of therapy. It's understanding, compassion, how did you get to, you know, how did you kind of become to, to where you are? And, and I think that's I really want to kind of shed some light on anyone who's listening, who's perhaps quite resistant or worried or nervous about starting therapy. It is a really, can be quite a freeing process because we learn to understand ourselves. We learn to stop being at war with ourselves and then have a bit more space for kindness. And that can be a really, really nice feeling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, so helpful as well to learn ways to help yourself on a internal level because like you said uh, it's a very common feeling to feel at war with your body every single day Um, a lot of people from our experience personal experience you know you wake up not knowing how your body is going to be feeling how it's going to be acting whether it's going to be functional as it was the day before and so it can feel really confronting to be almost at the mercy of your body and so learning that you know there are ways to feel kinder about that space and to acknowledge that you've made it through to this point doing whatever you can um, is fantastic but there there may be kinder ways to push through the next chapter of your life and I think that's what I've learned with my therapist is like you said the understanding so that I can kind of acknowledge that my body has survived up until this point, not that it's let me down up until this point. And that mindset, that change of framework, like we spoke about it in terms of gratitude. So we did an episode on gratitude and the um, biological effects within your brain that being grateful on a routine, on a regular basis, yeah, can actually change your biochemistry. And that's just by learning to be more grateful and so just learning those small little ways to kind of flip the script that you've been living up until this point is those little tiny steps towards feeling happier within yourself Um, and any happiness within the chronic illness life is a joy because like I said every day it it can be an awful day (laughs) and I think that's the thing with chronic illness too like you're forced to sit in a space that a lot of other people don't have to actually deal with or can ignore. So if you like wake up and you don't have anything physically stopping you in the morning or you don't have to stop and take remember to take medications every morning, you don't have to remind yourself to do things for yourself to continue to get through your day. If you can just get up and go about your life, you often don't need to or can choose to ignore how uncomfortable and vulnerable you might actually be feeling. And I think that's the biggest thing I've taken away from it is that in these last couple of years, I have really been forced to think about myself and how I feel physically, emotionally, and deeper than that superficial, yeah, I'm fine. And I think that's the thing. You don't know what each day is going to bring. It is unpredictable. You have to prepare for a good day, but you have to also prepare for a bad day. You know, there's the pressure on, like last night I had three plans and because of the storm, all three got cancelled. 
And I was so excited because a lot of me is like, oh, I need to go and I need to show up and I need to turn up for other people. And that's been like my battle. And I'm much better at it in the last 12 months to say, actually, no, I can't because I've had to sit in that space of I'm actually not doing as okay as I would like to be. So I have to stop now before I crash. Whereas before I just go like a steam train and crash and burn and so I think that's another thing about chronic illness it forces you to sit in the space of being uncomfortable Mm. and making that space semi-comfortable you know our brain avoids discomfort right when we're not wired to want to sit in discomfort we don't wake up and think yay i can't wait to be really uncomfortable today and i can't wait to be vulnerable today our brain is wired to really avoid that at all costs and i can imagine um you know anxiety can develop as a buffer against that right because i can imagine chronic illness is so unpredictable sometimes so anxiety is our brain's natural way of being like okay well we're not sure what's going to happen today let's roll the dice and hope for the best so i i know there is such a high comorbidity with anxiety and chronic yeah anxiety depression um it's it, it almost goes hand in hand unfortunately um and it it will it will touch people's lives at some point within their chronic illness journey um, because of that um, instability day to day um, and the degenerative nature of some illnesses also at a more rapid rate than the norm. And so it brings in feelings of, like I mentioned before, a lot of feelings of shame in that your body doesn't work in the way that others do at your age um and you know as we grow older especially being um females you know the idea of having children um it becomes like this social pressure also um to achieve a certain thing that potentially your body might not be able to do so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of feelings to process um on top of just the day-to-day um do i like my body today or do I feel okay? Um, and trying to also not burden other people with that um, mm. is a oh, huge absolutely. thing that we battle with, don't we? Um, in terms of, you know, we'll, we'll carry it for ourselves and not share that load because mm. we know how heavy that is and we don't want to give it to someone else. It's a big, a big block and barrier within relationships, within people with chronic illness because it takes a lot to not only acknowledge the burden for yourself but then to also then acknowledge and ask someone else to help you carry it it just seems impossible because we're also in a society fed that you know you can't take up too much space you can't rock the boat you need to be a passive person really um and there's nothing passive (laughs) about living with a chronic illness being a nurse too you're all about looking after others so you're like oh this is so horrible for me to carry i don't want someone else to carry Mm. it too like this against our nature and the whole reason why we're nurses because we care about others so you're like i'll just hold that Mm it's a personality type I can imagine of it's my needs are not as important right like I think that's inherently at the core of a lot of uh, health workers or or carers um, or females very stereotypically it's my needs are not as important and if I share that that feels too much I'm I don't want to take up too much space. Um, and so that must be also quite a lonely place to be. I can imagine quite an isolated feeling of I've got this heavy weight that I'm carrying and if I share it, 
you're right, Sean, you know, it's a lifelong burden and it's, you know, when you share something, you think this is a burden, we can put it down eventually, but I wonder with a chronic illness, it feels like this is a burden. I don't know when we can ever put it down. If I share this, someone has to carry it with me for the rest of my life. And I wonder if that's a resistance or, or something that stops you or people suffering from chronic illness from sharing. Absolutely. Because not only is it the, the weight of it is as it is now, but you have no idea what the future holds either. So, you know, there will be times that we, both of us will be sicker and something will be wrong, um, that we'll need medical attention, we'll need surgeries. So it's not even you're just selling it as, as seen, this will be what it's like forever. The, the degenerative nature of life is multiplied when you have something, um, you know, genetically wrong or um, autoimmune um, diseases. It's never going to be what it is today. It's always going to change. So you, the it's all about it's the instability of it, um, which yeah. is you know hard to manage at the best of times um, when you're living oh, in I, it. Absolutely, and so depleting. I think when we talk about it from a psychological context, and a lot of the work that I do with clients, um, I guess essentially the trauma of living with chronic illness is really at the roots about disconnection, disempowerment and lack of choice. And when mm. you think about being a small child, there are a lot of familiar narratives that come up um, with feeling helpless and lacking agency and feeling very disempowered and disconnected. Um, from self and that is absolutely exhausting it is an extraordinarily huge amount of suffering and grief um, that that comes with experiencing uh, that pain uh, what you were mentioning before about war with body uh, there's a huge polarity that I see a lot working with clients in, in chronic illness and that is that my body is meant to be the one place that I feel home and safe in or that I can come back to. And it is also the place that I battle with every day that I'm constantly fighting against. And that can be such a difficult process to reconcile with. Um, I see a lot of stuckness there uh, for people that experience chronic illness and that can be very depleting, very exhausting. Um, and it can lead a lot of people to feeling like, what is the point a lot of the time? Um, if this is the best it's going to be, like you mentioned, I just take these these good like these you know average days as best, um, and and so no wonder that we experience uh, exacerbated symptoms of depression and anxiety um, when we are living in that constant stress. Mm. Uh, so when when I think we are looking at um, stress, and again from this biopsychosocial approach. Um, you know, it, it is really about not separating, okay? I think it's often about becoming really conscious and connecting to our authenticity and agency, and that can be incredibly he healing, not easy. Mm. It's, it's very, very, very hard work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's really about coming back to self. Yeah. Um, and, and connecting with choice, connecting with... Um, uh, I guess what we're talking about before, understanding how much empowerment comes from understanding. Yeah, and, and knowing how our body is working and how we respond to things, whether it is 
you know, going back to childhood mechanisms um, which can cause inflammation uh, in our body which lead to you know more inflammatory proteins in our blood which lead to more flare-ups mm. understanding what our flare-ups mean understanding like even going down to like the more stress you have there is a structure called telomeres uh, I'm not sure if you're both both familiar with no. telomeres they're like think of think of shoelaces and the plasticky bit at the end of a shoelace mm-hmm. um, they they are the plasticky bit at the end of a shoelace um, and they're essentially telomeres are structures at the end of your chromosomes and they shorten with stress and age so children who have been through trauma have shorter telomeres which means that they are chronologically older than their peers old souls stress impacts <laughs> old souls that's right <laughs> you you've, you've kind of learned to either take care of yourself and 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 not need anything mm. Yeah, or you've you've felt so alone and so isolated in not having your needs met that you become needed. Yeah, you yeah. learn to be needed, and that's how you look after yourself. Yeah. Okay, so understanding how childhood stress impacts our brain physiology, um, you know, from our serotonin availability in our brain, which is our mood chemical. Early childhood programs um, impact our brain, you know, physiolo- physiology, physiologically in that sense. Um, which then impacts how compassionate we're able to be to ourselves. Yeah. Because essentially, if I don't see myself as someone who's worthy or valuable, okay, of looking after um, to the point where I look after other people to get value, a worth, acceptance, approval, um, then again, no wonder we have increased stress, no wonder we have increased illness. And then we tell ourselves that we are the wrong thing. My body mm. is the wrong thing because that's the safest assumption we can make. Mm. Um, because that's something we can fix, right? I if feel I just, so just targeted. I know. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is cutting to the core. Oh, well, like, that's it's so so interesting because like what you're just saying there, Amy, and then what Kat was saying about how it does make you feel lonely and isolated, mm. and it does force you to shut off because you don't think that you're wanted, needed. You mm. learn to be mm. independent. Your things get shorter on your chromosomes. Mine are probably just barely hanging in. I don't think you have any left. But mate. like just I was thinking about that. I and you talk about all this early childhood work. I didn't have any of this when I was younger, but this mm. is all happened at an as when I'm an adult. And I'm like, oh my God. And mm. so you know the last three years I've didn't want to date, struggled to date because I I've probably been my sickest in the last three years, but I came to terms with, right, this is me. I'm doing me. I have to look after myself because I was in a, ended up being in a toxic relationship and they, they left, they cheated. So I had all of that as well as all my chronic illness to discover. And so I was, I was left for a long time feeling I'm not wanted. I'm not needed. I'm very sick. I have to look after myself and I will get my joy out of looking after other people. And I'm like, holy fuck, she's literally talking about me. Yeah, <laughs> The but hyper-independence it as well. Is. And, like, and yeah. like Sean was saying, it's a lifelong disease. It is a lifelong condition. Like Sean was talking about family planning. That's a huge thing for me. And so I was like, well, it's just easier if I do this on my own because it's hard enough for me to accept, let alone have somebody else come in and accept me and all this extra baggage. And so it's... it's I really believe that that is the root of all lifelong disease. When you learn that you are alone in your pain, 
okay? That is the root of all suffering because that is where these stressful adaptions develop yeah, yeah absolutely and and like it was a horrible place to sit in because like I said I, mm-hmm. before that I hadn't really sat in it and then I was like oh god like I am alone and things would happen to me and I it would just hurt so much that I'd just keep withdrawing like I was mm. dating this guy uh, 18 months ago or something now but I was in hospital very 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 sick like I had a perforation post an endometriosis operation I was in hospital for 10 days she nearly died Uh, (laughs) and he didn't rock up he didn't rock up to the hospital so I'm like oh this is someone I've choose to let in who lives in the next suburb and isn't here you when you needed him the most yeah so I was like it became like oh god my chronic illness is too much Mm. He's, he's not there and so I think like hearing that I'm like god that's where I think a lot of all this stems from it's mm. it was the combo for me of relationships and growth but also my own physical illness and lots of chronic illness and stuff happening but the two of them together I'm like fuck mm. looking back that was a shit three years and yeah. like now I feel validated that it was and yeah. I've had all these feelings that you're talking about and now like you know, I'm much better now and I have a lovely boyfriend and he's lovely, but I'm really struggling to let him in because of these past traumatic three years. And he Mm. is so present and wanting to be there and checking in all the time. And I feel overwhelmed because he's, he's so present when I've not had that for a very long time Mm. and have navigated some really hard years on my own, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and doesn't that create a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, this idea of I'm inherently wrong or too much? And, you know, your brain, when it, when it has a core belief or I'm not enough or I'm wrong or I'm, there is something flawed about me, your brain will do this thing where it will always search your environment and try and make sure that that still remains true. But it will actively search it out and it will forget about the 99% of the times where you haven't been too much for someone, where you have been very valued in love because our brain doesn't love grey area. Our brain loves black and whiteness, right? So if you have ever felt that, even living with a chronic illness, Jess, you mentioned in your childhood you felt things were okay, but I wonder if you're learning perhaps in the last few years, oh, maybe there is something wrong with me. Maybe I am too much. And so your brain's like, okay, well, that's a new belief. Let's try and confirm that. Let's actually try and find that in our environment and in our relationships. And what it does is create a paradox because you're right, you were in hospital and you learn, yeah, your brain's like, see, this is because you're too much. We are confirming that for you. And the sad part of that is then you will withdraw from relationships. And it's that self-fulfilling prophecy. You think, oh my gosh, maybe it is true. And then you don't, because you withdraw, you don't give yourself the opportunity <laughs> to, to challenge that and, and go against that. So it actually creates even more loneliness and isolation if you have that thought and then withdraw because it's almost you're kind of creating that 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 reality and that's a really sad or or a paradox that I think a lot of people can get get stuck in I think what's also important to understand as as much as absolutely our brain is very clever in in how it will try to create safety through certainty like it's safer to do what is familiar and so I'll look for the evidence that confirms what is are certain to give me us like a pseudo sense of, of safety because our brain hates unpredictability. Um, but it, it's when it comes to attachment and our nervous system, it's, it's actually part of our whole organs processing apparatus, you know, which we're usually unconscious of these 
protective and defensive mechanisms of withdraw and shut down are actually part of our implicit memory. Um, they're, they're part of our whole unconscious um, autonomic nervous system and our brain is very clever because what it will do is it will respond to familiar narratives with perceptions of the past. How come? Because that's what's familiar and that's what's kept you safe. It's kept you safe to believe that you're the wrong thing because then you have control. And what does control give you? Certainty. If you're the wrong thing and, and it's a wrong thing about you, then you can change it. You can fix it. Okay, and, and what has the narrative taught you? If you can change it and you can fix it, then there's certainty that you'll, you'll have hope that things won't always be this way for the future. So for example, reactions such as defensiveness um, or shutdown or avoidance um, in terms of attachment are protective mechanisms for rejection and abandonment. You know, if certain emotions weren't allowed um, to be expressed, that is programmed biologically into your brain so that decades later, when you, you know, feel like your partner hasn't shown up for you or they literally haven't shown up for you in the most crucial time when it mattered most, we go into that same physiological response as we did when we were children as I'm just not good enough. I'm not lovable. It's because of the wrong things about me. Yeah. Okay. So it, it becomes confirmed in that sense as well. And it's such a heavy space to sit also. Mm. Um, it's not fun i mean i've done it m many a time throughout my life um and on the flip side of that like i remember was because when i was a child i had to i have scoliosis so i have a curvature of my mm. spine and as a child i had to wear a plaster paris on my torso um, from the ages of 18 months up until when i had surgery um but when i had surgery i was still in school i was in primary school so i was about nine and I had attached my identity at that point to my condition and the fact that I had a, I was different. I had a plaster Paris on. That was who I was. And then when I had my surgery, I didn't have to wear that anymore. And I remember asking my dad in the car on the way back from the hospital after having my final cast removed, I said to him, um, my dad asked, are you excited to go back to school with no cast on and I said no and he said why and I said I'm scared that no one's gonna like me anymore mm. because mm. I don't have my my jacket I used to call it um my mm. jacket on um because they're only friends with me because I have that and so I, I held so much of my childhood identity to my condition and who I was and in the same breath I was also terrified of of it and losing it but at the same time also wanted to be normal. And so it's just this, it's a paradox of mm. trying to live these both, both of these lives. And it can become, it can become quite uh, addictive almost or um, euphoric maybe yes. um, to fully c become your condition because that like you said is a safety of I know this this is who I am and this is who I identify as so you're either one end of the spectrum or the other you're either fully in it and that is all you are and this is everything the all of your values are, are attached to your condition and and how you're feeling or completely the opposite end of I don't have anything wrong with me I'm perfectly fine there's nothing that I can't do as That's good me. as anyone else yeah <laughs> But it's so, that. 
so interesting that you say that so, sorry to interrupt but I, I see this a lot too in how illness is seen as a pathological process where um it becomes like a fixed entity so it's you know um i am cancer or i am um endometriosis you know i have endometriosis it becomes like yeah like a, a real entity and i think this is definitely like one of those western views on illness you know that biomedical um model which assumes that illness is a deviation from the norm um based on measurable biological variables which leaves very room for the social psychological and behavioral dimensions of illness um and what you're talking about is is a really common shared human experience with those that have um, chronic illness is that I learned that I was most attended to when I was sick, when I wasn't well. So as much as it is the wrong bad thing about me, it is also effective at allowing me to meet some of those crucial um, attachment needs in, in feeling seen and heard, but not necessarily understood because I'm not normal. So it is, it is very, very confusing. Um, and, you know, it, it isn't just about uh, the, the uh, fixed entity. You know, it, it is, for example, if you go to a specialist, any kind of specialist, whether it is uh, uh, for psoriasis, you know, say you go to a, a specialist dermatologist for psoriasis, they'll give you a steroid cream, which is a copy of the stress hormone cortisol. Uh, if you go to a gastrointestinal specialist, um, they'll usually give you an injection. Oh, what is the injection called? It is... I can't think of it now, but again, it's essentially a copy of cortisol. Um, oh, hydrocortisol. The injections? Yeah. 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 In most autoimmune diseases, we, we treat these condition, conditions across medicine with stress hormones, but we're not actually literally addressing. I'm on prednisolone every day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm on steroids yes. every day. She's the day. most stressed bitch ever already as right? a baseline. <laughs> and, and how many of these ologists, these ologist people, asked you, like, what is stress like for you? Um, what was what was primary school like for you when you were learning about your illness? Um, what have your experiences of loneliness, um, social connectedness been like? Um, you know, <laughs> we we are treating conditions that are rooted in stress with stress. Yeah, so much sense. Boggles my tiny mind. So much sense. <laughs> It's yeah, modern medicine exact, at its exactly finest. Exactly what you're talking about. Um, this this kind of like constant like nonsensical juxtaposition of like this is true, but then this feels true. So which one is true? I don't know. I can't trust anything. SOS. Yeah, sending out SOSs daily. I think into the atmosphere <laughs> are most people with chronic illness. I know I send mine out. So when I first went to therapy, I found a lot um, of my current behaviors were from my childhood and how I have um, experienced life as a child. Because my condition has been lifelong, I grew up with lots of things going wrong from a very early age and had to learn relatively quickly how to handle it. And much like you said, in um, you become chronologically old, older than what you are from the from as 
young as I can remember, I've always been um, a wise head on young shoulders, mature for my age, et cetera, et cetera, um, because I've had to navigate a space where I've had to mature, quote unquote, um, within hospital life, within family life of divorce and separation with my parents. You know, there's a lot of times where I've had to step up to a plate that I put there myself and felt like I had to fix and carry. Um, but I found when I went to therapy that a lot of that was coming from my relationship with my parents, the perception of the parents, the parenting that I received. And I found a lot of um, guilt. I felt a lot of guilt or um, upset around that because I, I didn't want my parents to feel that I was a product of their parenting being bad in inverted commas because they did everything that they could for me but I found that that I, I found it very hard to navigate that space of not wanting to blame them but wanting to blame someone or something for why I am the way I am or why the why I feel the way I feel and I think I find because I like to know the why and I like to have a closure on things knowing that there is no one to blame no one thing to blame so difficult to deal with yeah and and even guilt guilt is a protective mechanism that kept you safe um from from blaming your parents because if you were little and your survival depends on your parents how unsafe would it have been do you think you are horrible parents who let me down all the time and i can't trust you then where would we go so guilt functions to kind of keep you in line, um, to, again, to allow hope, to to keep you safe in the sense of, uh, well, okay, if I can just do this or I should be doing this or I, I must do this and then my parents will be happy and then I'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, and that similarly, we apply that now to not having parents, but if I do this and I do this, I'll achieve as a person and I will fit in society mm. and everything will be fine. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's constant battle and that's why therapy is great because someone else helps you you know because I I have struggled up until now and I've been doing it by myself so clearly it ain't working so (laughs) I need someone else to help me so um that's why I I tell everyone to go to therapy I'm a walking billboard for it I think um my therapist shared with me around I don't like to cry and then because I obviously am a pediatric nurse my therapist said well what if a child that you were caring for was having something done to them and they were crying would you tell them to stop I said oh no no absolutely not I'd be like let it out cry as loud as you need hold my hand squeeze it you know and I would allow space for someone else in the blink of an eye to feel their feelings but I would not be able to allow myself the same and I think learning that um, has been the most eye-opening in that I hold my yeah I hold myself to a standard that is I'm setting myself up to fail basically it's a hard lesson to learn to know that you're preventing as valuable yourself as others too you yeah don't, you don't believe you're as valuable as other people no ourselves at such a different level to others don't we? Mm. we always think we're the kind of exception to the rule like yes I would give my friends all the advice but I'd never take it myself yeah why is that and- Good question. Oh, great. (laughs) Because childhood, right, it is so adaptive, like shame really functions. Um, I think shame is really misunderstood. And and this is essentially what you're talking about at the root of these really awful, yucky feelings like undeservingness, 
uh, not as valuable, not as worthy. I'm only accepted, approved of if I'm doing things for other people. Okay. These are all memories from a broken connection. Okay. In childhood, when that connection is ruptured, I think you said it beautifully. Uh, there is no blame uh, for what parents do when they are not conscious because it's intergenerational. You know, they're emotionally shut off because their parents were emotionally shut off. I think, like we were saying at the beginning of this podcast, we have so much more mental health awareness now. Um, you know, even in the last, say, three to five years, I'm seeing younger generations just be so much more aware and attuned uh, to themselves and to, to their psychology, which is amazing. Um, but essentially, like it, it is intergenerational, intergenerational and shame really functions as part of our internal um, map in that shame is a memory, an implicit memory. So a bodily, emotional memory that has no time and date stamp. Shame is a memory of a broken connection or a ruptured attachment bond. And we made sense of that broken connection by that was that was my fault. Yeah, I, I am the reason that I now feel disconnected or alone in this experience. Why is that protective? Because then we can fix it. It is, it is the safest assumption we can make. And then that sticks and it becomes a confirmation bias. Uh, it becomes replicated in our adult relationships. And then we end up, it's kind of like a, a old, old house that gets wired and then the lights stop working as well. You need to replace the light bulbs more often. Um, you know, it, it, it works until it doesn't. We get to a certain age where it's like, ah, now I just feel stuck in the dark and I don't see myself. I don't know what I need. You know, I can't reach for anything. Um, and it is about rewiring so we're then able to turn the lights on and, and, and be able to see ourselves in a more authentic um, and connected light. And so... Having worked in um, the mental health space and having clients with chronic illness, what are some of the small practices that we can do to kind of and to set up our space within our mental load to be a bit kinder to ourselves? I think you've mentioned hope a few times and I, I really like that word and, and Jess, you were speaking at the beginning about holding yourself to this account of trying to like do all your day shifts and your night shifts and I, I really want to humanize that for you because and I think this is really important to, to remember for anyone who's listening is that you wanting to do it all it is just like you wanting to be like everyone else and isn't that such a human thing to want to do sometimes I think perhaps you may feel guilty or silly or, or shame right being like oh I shouldn't be doing all this but I keep saying yes right I do just want to humanize that that's actually really normal to want to, to see everyone around you and want to do the same as them. I think there's kind of this want to be like everyone else, which I can imagine in, in chronic illness, you feel that disconnect and isolation quite a lot. So I, I think I, I wonder if you experience that, that lots of other people do as well, that I want to just be up here where it looks like everyone else is. And I think not meeting that with frustration of self, but actually being like, you know what? Like, <laughs> I'm human for wanting to work these shifts because I'm seeing that everyone else can do that. So of course I want to do that. Maybe it's so acknowledging that you're different. You know, your, your baseline and what you can cope with is, is quite different each day. <laughs> I guess everyone has got a pretty, you know, I guess people who don't live with chronic illness, um, you know, can, can manage, you know, maybe through the week and, and kind of get through and each day is 
fairly similar, but, but I guess living with a chronic illness and also a mental illness, there's quite a link here, isn't there? Each day is different, right? Your capacity yesterday may not be the same capacity as today. And, and I, I guess when I work with clients, it's acknowledging, okay, well, what does your capacity look like today? Let's just focus on today. And is it okay that that, that looks different from yesterday and maybe even tomorrow? I, I think that that can be really helpful to just reframe and, and kind of be a little bit more understanding and compassionate to that. Your capacity is very different. Sometimes hour to hour, like <laughs> if you need to break it down to the hour to hour, that, that can be really helpful as well. But also that if you want to, if you kind of push yourself and, and you know, jeopardize your own boundaries and your capacity, that, that it's also really human <laughs> to, to do that. I think we all just want to fit in and be like everyone else. But maybe it's acknowledging that your different can just be a little bit different, different each day. Um, and that's really wonderful to have that kind of reframe uh, in your day. So that's something that I find really helpful. And also just those smaller practices, you know, body work is really important, especially with chronic illness. We spoke about that disconnect with our body, that shame and hate. Sometimes just body neutrality. Uh, I think we kind of hear a lot of body love and body acceptance and then that can feel even harder to do with a chronic illness, right? Or when we, a lot of our shame <laughs> and hatred and loathing can come from our body. So how, like, can, is there room to shape and change our relationship with our body? I think Shani mentioned gratitude is wonderful, but I think even before that, it's hard to get to gratitude and love when you're not even when you when you hate your parts of your body so something that can be helpful is actually acceptance and neutrality like just getting to a point of you know what my body's okay yeah there are things i don't love about it, things i do like about it and that is a huge step i i think a lot of people feel this sense of i need to love and accept and have gratitude for everything about myself but perhaps that's too much and it's okay if it is if you've hated your body it's really hard to make that jump so a lot of the work can be can you is there parts of your body you can just have neutral neutrality with you know just yep this is my leg and this is my endo and taking that emotion out of it it's a huge step and so yeah that that's yeah that's that's very helpful actually because there is a lot within social media at the moment around body body positivity and like you said body love and that can almost be an unachievable goal which then on that self-fulfilling like well that's way too far I'm never going to do that so I'm just going to continue to sit in this hatred space so just being able to know that neutrality is an option Mm -hmm. is huge because it's not commonly presented it's either a love or hate it's not this in the middle of the road space so yeah that's that's a really a really helpful tip um that i think many of us many of our listeners will be able to work towards because it's a more achievable goal goal and a more achievable emotional space rather than the extreme yeah, it feels a bit more doable, doesn't it? It takes that pressure off because there's so much pressure already, I can imagine. So to to have that awareness, it's okay if today things are just neutral or even tolerance. Like even if neutrality feels even too much to go from hatred to neutrality for some, even that's a big step. So I guess a lot of the work I do is 
what, what, what parts of your body can you tolerate today? Yeah. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a bully your whole life and become best friends with them. You'd be like, Hey, what's up? Let's be BFFs. You'd be like, "Mm, I'll start to tolerate you if I want to build my relationship with you. So smaller steps, you're not supposed to go zero to a hundred. That's so unrealistic. So taking that pressure off of yourself and your body, um, and starting small, I think is a really helpful way to feel a bit more connected with that body. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. I love that. You You're never going to be best friends with a bully. I yeah, that's that. nice. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, yeah. yeah. Beautifully said. The, the only other things that I, I would add, add to that, uh, working with people who are living with chronic illness, uh, is a lot of nervous system regulation, stress reduction. Uh, stress is really at the root of chronic illness, and I know that is a really big, bold statement. Um, but that is definitely how I work with my clients who, who are experiencing chronic illness and have for their whole lives. Um, it is really rooted in nervous system and as, as part of that adaptive um, childhood programming. So I will work a lot around complex developmental trauma. Um, I will work a lot around um, somatic practices um, so embodiment experiencing, uh, whether that be through mindfulness or even just becoming conscious of what our body is signaling and our emotions that might have been suppressed or repressed at the time. Even things like learning to express anger in a healthy way. Oftentimes when we suppress healthy anger, we're affecting every single aspect of our physiology and that becomes stuck in our nervous system. So that can be really, really important to understand and work through. And I think like I mentioned before, um, a lot of people experience this sense of disempowerment, disconnection and lack of choice. So really working on building up that understanding and those insights to create a sense of empowerment and agency and choice over things that we, over what we can when when working with um, chronic illness. And I think with stress, I like to break it down into three aspects. So there will be the event that triggers our stress response. There'll be the physiological stress, which is you know our nervous system, our gut, uh, our heart rate. It might be a flare-up in psoriasis, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, all, all of those types I'm of like, things. I'm like, tick, 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 psoriasis, tick, endo, tick. Yeah. I'm like, listen, Jess. IBS, tick. Listen. All of those inflammatory illnesses, okay? Um, so our processing apparatus, uh, which, again, those unconscious responses triggered by perceptions of the past, really understanding um, our responses and how they relate to um, earlier experiences to expand our capacity to cope, which will help us change that response, okay? When we can expand our capacity to feel safe within ourselves, which is no mean feat, as we've mentioned, it's been um, a battle, a war, but understanding as a process, which can really, really help not only regulate our nervous system, which calms down all of the um, inflammatory uh, based illnesses and can really help when it comes to, uh, I guess, feeling in control, having a sense of agency. You know, we can change our physiology. I can change my breath. I can move my body in a way that is calming. Okay, those are things that you have choice over. And I think it's so, so crucial to never forget that you you do actually always have choice. It may be 
a really small aspect of your day. Okay, but sometimes we have to walk a little slower to go further. Okay, um, so, so I, I will work mainly from that framework um, and, and really focusing on also our, our, our body balance. Okay, so when our energy is low because our body is coping with more, looking at what is depleting me, what is taking away energy and how do I nourish myself? Okay, whether that be through self-compassion, through gratitude, those types of nourishments, or whether it be through anything that gives you a sense of feeling content. Okay, um, finding those small deposits that can help top us up when we're feeling unbalanced or depleted is really important too. Oh, and the biggest thing, connection. Oh my goodness, connection, connection, connection. I cannot stress that enough. Um, whether it be really learning to connect to your authenticity that is, that is just mwah, chef's kiss. If you can do that, great. But uh, mwah, a, a lot of us can't um, and that's okay. That's what therapy's for. Uh, but social connection, okay? I think that is the, the most hugest thing. <laughs> great, great grammar, great English. Um, uh, yes, but social support and connection, feeling truly held, seen and understood, validated, accepted, Find people that feel like warm fuzziness, okay? And you are never a burden. There is nothing wrong with you. There are no bad parts. As helpers, we understand the feel-good feelings of being able to be there for someone, okay? Your loved ones that care about you want to help you. Sometimes they just don't know how. And being vulnerable with someone allows some someone else that's part of your support system to be able to help you and that benefits both of you okay I, I think that is truly one of the most important healing agents when it comes to working with anything but definitely chronic illness connection 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 always what what advice would you give perhaps your younger selves um, maybe when you were learning about your chronic illness or when you were learning about illness in general um, what, did, what advice would you have wanted younger you to know? Oh, I think for me, it would probably be that don't ignore it. Like my biggest thing was like I, I copped a diagnosis. So say for like my endometriosis, I got that diagnosed 10 years ago. And I just did a wonderful job at ignoring it for seven, eight years and was experiencing horrible symptoms, but just chose to ignore it. Cause I'm like, well, there's no cure for this shitty thing. So just pretend you don't have it really. Um, so I think again, that on top of like my horrendous breakup a few years ago, I think that put me into this spiral of toxic positivity and toxic mm. overachieving, like, I have to be the best at everything because why wasn't I good enough or why did this happen to me or why did I cop this diagnosis? Why did someone walk out on me? I need to be the best at everything. So I, my biggest thing was that I ignored physical signs that I wasn't actually as well as I would have liked to believe I was and I just became so consumed by overachieving that I ignored it and the end result is I got sicker. Um, and so I think really 
educating myself and I mean it was hard because I was diagnosed say with the endometriosis 10 years ago and there was minimal talk about it then like it's not like the community that it is now there was we didn't have Instagram like we Mm. Instagram only just was a thing there was no one talking about endo there was no funding into endo I hadn't done my research so I had an operation that I'm actually not very happy that I had it wasn't the type that I'd wanted but you know, that wasn't really to my fault because there wasn't a lot of chat or knowledge around it. But I kind of wish I had researched a little bit more, but I was 18 and young and, you know, still going to an appointment with my mum and still discovering who I was as a woman and getting to know my body. And I just, I don't think I really got to know me as an adult yet. I think I was only just becoming an adult and really learning what I wanted in life or thinking about Jess now at 28. That was a hard thing to think about when you're 18. And I was with my high school boyfriend and Mm. thought, oh, we'll get married and live happily ever after. And like, you know, I wasn't even a nurse yet. Like I was still just finding my own feet. So I think just giving myself more time to learn about my disease, to advocate for myself, which I've had to do a lot now. But unfortunately, a lot of people with chronic illnesses do have to advocate for themselves a lot, which is bloody exhausting. Like, you know, to get the lupus diagnosis, it was when I look back and you talk about the inner child work, I was never well as a child. I was always something going on, but it was you have psoriasis or you have this knee problem or you have low grade fevers because you've always got throat infections or you've got this problem or you've got effusions but it was never someone holistically going hang on there's a systemic problem here and so yeah I think I just my biggest advice would be to just really advocate for yourself if you're not feeling well you're actually not feeling well like I do an amazing job of ignoring my symptoms like I can't walk at the end of a shift but I'm like other people might be like this but you know like I just think actually listening to my body myself advocating for myself that would be the biggest thing that I would have wished that I had done at 18 but I was young and I didn't know and you know I think if I was diagnosed now with some of those things at 28 there is way more support and help Mm. out there and there's people like you guys there's podcasts there's you know so many support pages and I think I probably would have done better but you know it was a hard time back then and it does just show I guess a positive in all of this conversation is that we have come leaps and bounds in improving our physical health mental health there is way more conversation and time and energy put into it but yeah I think that's the biggest thing for me is just prioritize me a bit more Mm because I'm really good at not doing it love that Mm. yeah beautiful absolutely um I think for me it's a little bit different in the um my diagnosis came when I didn't it wasn't diagnosed to me it was diagnosed to my parents and so my parents were the ones that were teaching me really about what was wrong with me um for lack Uh, of a better word see I knew I knew one of you would pick that up (laughs) um so I I learned through my parents and I am Um, the oldest of myself and my sister. So my sister and I are three years apart. And so I wasn't diagnosed until I was six. So I spent, you know, a a small part of my childhood as just the ill sibling. Um, And so I, looking back, I think as my childhood as a whole, obviously growing up with um, a genetic disorder and the multiple surgeries, et cetera, et cetera, I think I would tell myself to similar to Jess into to not ignore that 
there is something different about me and through you know no fault of their own my parents brought my sister and I up the same and there was no um there was no difference in ability in their eyes even though anatomically there is and so I think I have been brought up to know that being disabled is a subconscious negative and so that has been the core of uh or the foundation of how I've built my identity and and, and self in that my illnesses and my conditions should not affect anything that I do and there should be no adaptation because I'm normal in inverted commas and so I would like to tell my younger self that it's okay to adapt things to make it easier for you you are built the way you are and the world should adapt to you not the other way around and I think if I had been taught that from a younger age I would be more um, comfortable in requesting adaptation within my life whether that be through time spent somewhere or even just chairs or desks or sofas shoes whatever mm. i would i would believe i believe that i would be able to ask for those adaptations as a basis as a basic need and necessity rather than necessity. this yeah. extra step to make me feel comfortable so i would hope that my younger self would adapt herself less and adapt mm. her surrounding more is the crux I guess of what I would tell myself and what I'm trying to tell myself now so it's it's not the different message I'm just learning it as a 30 year old rather than as a four-year-old um and that's a hard you know habit to break um but I think that's what I would I would tell myself but yeah so I I think look we could talk for hours on I end. I could talk to you both for days, I think. Oh, I, I honestly think that we've just kind of got a free therapy session, which I'm very <laughs> yeah, thankful I know. for. I'm stoked. <laughs> I'm so sorry that we're not paying you. <laughs> we appreciate your expertise uh, and your listening and abilities. I love how we like sent each other like questions and I'm like, oh, we, we didn't just even had a look chat. At them. I, know, I was thinking, oh my yeah. gosh, I was looking at that question page like, we haven't even, um, we I know, we, but Gary, also, um, but we didn't even get to I know we did cover a lot of it though I guess within the chat though didn't we yeah and I think you know the conversation around management of chronic illness is a never-ending discussion I think that our conversation today has only shown there are so many levels to being chronically ill and to learn how to be a better version of yourself and to care for yourself better just off topic before we finish um I don't like using the word chronically ill um, sufferer or I suffer from. Mm. I don't enjoy using that. And I also don't enjoy using survivor either. Um, I've had a stroke um, that I'm very lucky that I can talk, walk. Um, I shouldn't really be able to, but, you know, uh, I am very thankful for that. But a lot of the terminology around stroke is stroke survivor. Um, and I don't enjoy that phrase um and that's probably on a deeper level something that i need to work on but <laughs> this the survivor element of it is that <laughs> something has happened and that you know there's this praise that you've 
you've, you're Come existing. Out, yeah. And mm. I, I just don't enjoy that um, connotation of that word. Um, well, of course not, because we are taught that we are not merely praised for just existing. We are not just, you know, valued and worthy for just being us. We have to do something yeah. to be celebrated and to be praised. Yeah. So just for surviving feels stupid, right? Like it sounds ridiculous to say that you survived or to, to call yourself a survivor for um, surviving a stroke. Like I didn't actually do anything. Okay, so it, it, it kind of goes back to that fatal um, idea that if I, I'm not achieving, if I'm not, you know, succeeding, if I'm not um, being needed, um, you know, then, then I'm not worthy, valuable, deserving, okay? And, and, and this, this is actually super, super common um, for a lot of people that experience chronic illness or, or any kind of, um, I guess, lifelong trauma that impacts them daily um, because there is, they again, going back to childhood programming, they were never seen as important just for being them, just for being. You, you lose that that connection to your authentic value. Who knew not liking a word was that like in Deep. depth? <laughs> Far out. But it's very true. It's very true. Because also I don't like to connect with that because I'm not, here we go. Uh, <laughs> this is a big topic for the end of the discussion. I don't feel that because I came out functioning, even though pre-stroke, like when I was having my stroke, I couldn't talk, couldn't walk, face drop, para paralyzed, right side, etc. Had surgery, removed the clot, everything came back. Mm. Part of my brain that is dead, I don't need, which is great. But because of that, I don't feel like I can associate myself as a stroke survivor because I don't look like I've had one. And because your outcome was better. And also you didn't choose to have a stroke. So you're like, I'm not a stroke survivor. I didn't, mm. I didn't fucking climb a mountain. And then, mm. oh, you could call me a mountain survivor, but yeah. like you didn't choose to have a stroke that happened to you and it was shit. So why would you want to talk about surviving that? And like yeah. you said, when again, the whole invisible illness thing, Mm. It doesn't look like Sean's had a stroke. Yeah. And you don't want to go and talk to someone who's had the same stroke as Sean and is now wheelchair dependent because you again carry the guilt, don't you? And you're mm. like, well, there's someone else in the nurse life in you. Someone else is worse off than me. So then mine is not valid. Yeah. Just having this conversation briefly, just, and this stemmed from just well, the use of a I word. Mean, um, and it just shows how in depth we are as beings and uh, how much language environment experience can drive who we are and how we react to the world around us so I just I don't know I, I just from this conversation I, I, I take away that we are so much more than surface level and that our general experience of life is so much deeper than just what we're experiencing in that moment and I I really value you both and your discussion today. Um, yeah, I sorry to have totally railroaded the questions with us just chatting. Oh my goodness, do not apologize. This is the conversation that we're here for. And I think I can speak for both Kat and myself, just how much we have thoroughly enjoyed um, this conversation. I think a lot of people are going to get so much out of this conversation I think there is nothing more connecting and validating and normalizing than hearing from personal experience and shared stories because it makes you feel like you're not alone 
Yeah. Um, so I, I think all of the conversations, everything that you have shared, I really appreciate your vulnerability. I think it is actually super brave and courageous um, to, to share these parts of yourself um, in, in a platform, but I think super important and super helpful um, to not just those that might be living with chronic illness, but for anyone who has ever experienced stress or trauma or feeling lost within themselves or battling a part of themselves that they find really difficult to accept. Um, similar things apply, right? It's it, it's not an uncommon experience, yet we, we feel so alone in it. So um, I can't thank you both enough for joining Kat and I today. Oh. Fab. We just had a great time. Yeah. And thank you girls for like bringing all of your knowledge to and literally giving us a therapy session and <laughs> helping us to feel, to understand why we feel the way we do sometimes. Yeah. Cause a lot of what we said, it is isolating and it's really, really helpful to know that, hang on, I feel like this because of this, which it's about taking the time and the step back to actually think about that and thinking more about why not like, okay, I feel like this, so I'll just feel like this. And mm. it's, I don't know, it's really helpful to, to understand the why and where it stems from. And I think a lot of listeners who probably feel similar feelings at points in their lives, whether you have a chronic illness or not, really, I think everyone is capable and likely to feel alone and lonely and isolated at some point in their life. And if, if anything, it's a pandemic of three years where you're forced to be alone, isn't it? I think most people have been through something and I think anyone and everyone will get something out of this episode. So thank you girls for all your knowledge because mm. we have sure learnt so much. So much. And we have a lot of physical knowledge and science and biology but hearing the mental health stuff is just something which I if anything I've learned today to prioritize more mm, absolutely so just before we sign off um, I'm throwing this on you both and I apologize in advance but at the end of our episodes we have a segment called questions and quotes and obviously the questions we've kind of asked each other throughout so we won't do them unless you have any burning questions for us um, but if you have a quote that you resonate with or that you like to share with your clients and patients or family that really help you in your day-to-day -day or in a bad situation that you'd like to share with the listeners that would be amazing uh, this one is might sound a little strange but it is something that I always say to myself and to my clients and it's if you had grown up like how that person had grown up with their genetics and their environment you would be doing exactly what they are doing right now and often what that can mean is you can look at your judgment really differently when we judge other people, always knowing that had you had the same experience, you would be doing and saying and behaving exactly like they are. So I think that that's a really helpful quote, uh, I think, that really helps to kind of reframe our sometimes our judgment of ourselves and, and other people. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, I love that. Love that. That's so good. Amy, do you have one? Oh, absolutely. I, I love that quote too. I think that is uh, amazing. Uh, and, and can be really, really helpful in validating um, our responses to our experiences. I'm probably going to butcher my quote because I can't, on the spot, the pressure is getting to me. I can't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
However, it is something along the lines of uh, the greatest stress we will ever experience is a disconnection from our authenticity or a disconnection from ourselves. Well, if that's not a cute little summary of today, I love that. That's so beautiful. Coming out with the goods there, Amy. It was fantastic. No, it is is my favourite and I, I feel like it is extremely helpful to reflect on. Um, I really resonate with that quote. I think when you think about your early experiences um, and, and even just going through your twenties, like when you are trying to figure out who the fuck you are and what is life and what do I feel and what am I doing and who am I? Um, that is so stressful. And then you throw a chronic illness on top of that and it is just a perfect storm. Isn't it? In uh, a teacup. Yeah. In a teacup with yeah. a lid on it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both again so much. Um, Thank you so much for having us on. We so appreciate um, that you guys got to share you know, a little bit about you and us as well. And we should actually be spitballing the chronic psychology sisters. Like, just a thought. Can we have <laughs> the episode title? Stop it. Stop it. I, I, I've been wanting to say it all episode. I was like, too keen, too keen. Stop too it. Keen. <laughs> what if we did it like, like one every season? <laughs> yes. Oh, one every season? Yes. Could we? <laughs> look, how, look how excited Amy is. Ah, ah. She's the teapot. She's, like the teapot. She's screaming. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm. that is an amazing spitball there, Kat. Love that. Yeah. If our listeners want to find you know more about you where could they find you um so we are on instagram at the psychology sisters our podcast is on all the podcast apps under the psychology sisters we have an online clinic uh called the site collaborative which is exciting so you can find us at the site collaborative on instagram and you can just google us on the site collaborative not like us personally like <laughs> not us personally Do, don't find our addresses please <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we will sign out. We hope you have a fabulous Fabulous. week. Take Take care. care. Bye.